0: Hi, and welcome to A Slice of Life from Anxiety Master. My name is Dominic Decker. I'm a coach and registered therapist and your support behind Anxiety Master for a strong and confident life. Now, Who do you think you are? That's a bit of a question, isn't it? Listen, today I want to share with you five entrenched myths about personality and why these ill-founded beliefs might, even if you don't know it, be holding you up in your outlook and progress in life. Now, suppose you've ever done a personality test like the Myers-Briggs, In that case, you might identify as an ISTJ, hardworking and trustworthy with sound practical judgment. Or maybe an INTP, an original thinker who enjoys speculation and creative problem solving. It's a neat idea, isn't it? That we can fit ourselves into one of these 16 boxes, or instead, if we're short for room, we can squeeze through into one of the six types of people in the revised NEO personality inventory. Because similar to reading the horoscope, personality tests offer some order to things. It's like a filter through which to understand ourselves amidst the daily chaos. A personality test provides a bit of context for who we are and why things are the way they are. And plus, it's kind of fun. And a combination of fun and structure is something we can all appreciate. Indeed, in the 2018 book The Personality Brokers – The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and Personality Testing – Dr. Merv Emra explains that personality profiling represents a $2 billion industry. We're talking huge, huge amounts of investment going into this. About 2 million people take it annually at the behest of corporate human resources departments and colleges, and even government agencies. The company that produces and markets and tests this test makes around $20 million off it each year. That sounds pretty tidy. If you're not familiar with the Myers-Briggs test, briefly it's a 93-question assessment that claims to group people into 16 different discrete types and in doing so serves as a powerful, by the way, this is their words, not mine, a powerful framework for building better relationships, driving positive change, harnessing innovation and achieving excellence. So on the surface, it's a pretty impressive array of benefits. Yet developed in the 1940s, based on the untested theories of Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung, it's worth noting that the test is roundly disregarded by the psychology community. Various studies have shown that the test is ineffective at predicting, for instance, people's job success. And about half of the people who take it twice get different results each time. Even Jung warned that his personality types were just rough tendencies he's observed rather than strict classifications. He even noted every individual is an exception to the rule, which kind of tells us everything we might need to know about how valid these tests are. Now, suppose you're trying to make significant changes in your life, but you feel stuck or discouraged. In that case, the fact that your personality type doesn't exist, or for that case, even matter, represents welcome news. In other words, rather than being a personality type, your character and personality belong to you. The most fundamental aspect of your humanity is that you get to make choices and stand by those choices and this is what the second world war prisoner of war victor frankl called the last of human freedoms to choose one's own way you know, choosing one's way makes us human and the more we each own our decision making the more our life and its outcomes will be within our control So today I'd like to share some of the myths around personality tests and as we go, maybe work in some new ideas about who we are and who we might be able to become along the way. So our first myth, and we've kind of touched on this already, but personality can be categorised. Now the Myers-Briggs tests, for example, they were developed in the early 20th century and neither Catherine Briggs nor her daughter, Isabel Myers, had a scientific background. In fact, they'd never so much as stepped foot in a lab. Instead, the test was based entirely on Briggs' personal experiences. After noticing that she and her husband responded differently to similar situations and that one of their children was much shyer than the other, she began to speculate on some of the personality differences. Myers and Briggs didn't only identify different personalities, though. They also claimed that these were innate, so they're kind of something that we carry around with us. They're fixed internal traits. Um, And according to Myers and Briggs, these so-called traits, like kindness or stinginess, they're not virtues or vices to be cultivated or abandoned. They're simply the way you are. Now, the flip side of this idea was that you shouldn't try to change your personality. Instead, if anything, it was up to others to accommodate your hardwired traits and dispositions. And for this reason... Knowing that personality testing has no foundation in scientific evidence is liberating. Because when you stop thinking that you're naturally introverted or impatient, it becomes possible to explore ways of developing your personality if you want to. Where in essence, each of us is an organism with the potential to adapt and adjust to the ups and downs in life. I and mean, this is probably one reason why we've been so successful as a species and should put paid to the idea that we're somehow fixed with our personalities and not able to evolve. And this feeds perfectly into the myth number two, which is that personality is innate and fixed. So in other words, you are who you are. Your identity is innate. It's something within you. It's fixed and it isn't going to change This is the perfect myth for those determined to stay stuck and not move themselves forward. Yet the idea that your personality is innate and fixed doesn't really stand up to any scrutiny. In 2016, a team of researchers published the results of a long-running study in the journal Psychology and Aging. It was launched in Scotland in the 1950s, and the study asked teachers to rate... Uh, 1,208 14-year-olds on personality traits, such as self-confidence, originality, the desire to learn, etc. And 60 years later, 674 of the original participants were retested. And this time, they rated themselves. Now, what do you think the result was? Can you imagine that of those participants who were left and rated themselves, had they changed or were they exactly the same as they were? Well, the result was that there was virtually no overlap between the two tests. Now, this surprised the researchers, because they'd expected to find evidence of personality stability over the decades. But the data didn't support this idea. Instead, it busted a myth at the core of personality testing, and that's the notion that personalities are fixed. Because personality modifies over time, it's just that we struggle to anticipate the inevitability of further change in the future. You can take it from Daniel Gilbert. He's a psychologist at Harvard University. In his research, Gilbert asks people how much their interests, goals, and values have changed over the previous 10 years. In most cases, the answer was a lot. But here's where things really got interesting because despite acknowledging how much they'd changed over the previous decade, most participants only expected minor future changes. This phenomenon has been referred to as the end of history illusion. And it suggests that we can usually recognise that we've changed in the past. I mean, if we couldn't, no one would remove tattoos that they've come to regret or get divorced with from people that they don't love anymore or take up jogging to shed the pounds that they've gained over the years. Yet the future is unknowable. So anticipating changes down the line is kind of challenging and awkward. So instead, we assume that past changes have led us to where we are now and that this is how we'll remain in the future Yet, yeah, of course, this is a false perception, because each of us can anticipate and even plan future change. It's just that we tend to forget our own agency, most likely in the autopilot activity of everyday life. And so we often fail to grasp the degree of control available right in front of us. Now, Myth number three about personality. Personality and this concept that it derives from our past. So there's a premise in science known as causal determinism. And um, this is the idea that earlier conditions or events cause everything that happens or exists. And from this perspective, people are determined by prior events like one domino in a toppling chain. Now, while people appear predictable over time, it follows to think that people's personalities are a product of their past. We say things like, oh, I'm like this because such and such a thing happened. And it's true that we are shaped by our experiences and that past behaviour is, to some extent, a stable predictor of future behaviour. Yet the reason for the consistency differs from a fixed and unchanging personality. Instead, it's more to do with the patterns and relationships people get stuck in with their pasts. So, for instance, we carry past traumas that haven't been processed, and these steeply challenging events frame our expectations of life and ourselves, And so, from one perspective, perhaps this stops us from moving forward in a way that we might be able to. Or we might carry an identity narrative based on the past. Let's say, for instance, if, as a result of earlier experience, we carry a narrative of being socially awkward, we might avoid, as a result, public occasions or interactions with others. And then, as a consequence of limited contact with others, we then bind ourselves to the notion that we are just socially awkward. And then we adopt this as part of who we believe ourselves to be but the reality though is that as soon as you'd forget yourself and relax in a social situation you would experience yourself as someone entirely different now another reason why we might believe personality comes from the past is that the subconscious works to keep us consistent with our former selves so for many of us feeling consistent in our actions and values and appearing in keeping to others is a trait that we value because remaining constant is a component of being reliable and this is a trait that we we tend to appreciate in ourselves and others so when you make a decision there's a good chance that you'd like to stay aligned with your choice for instance um if you've already decided that you'd like to leave a tip before a meal you'll likely still leave a small something for the waiter even if the service is mediocre at best Or if you've already decided to part with your money for something, we often can't wait to finish up at the till and have that transaction done and that internal expectation of completion fulfilled. The final reason we might assume that personality is fixed relates to our environment. In other words, whether the people, cues and prompts that surround us support our current or future identity. So for instance, your notion of living healthily and having a healthy and active life will be influenced by the people you surround yourself with and the food you choose to keep in your cupboard because these choices appear to reflect who you are. Imagine, for instance, you have two social circles, one made up of avid um, alcohol drinkers and smokers who'd scoff at the idea of exercise, yet the other comprises exercise enthusiasts who meet up for regular sports sessions and like tracking their physical progress and development. And if you wanted to up your game and get fit, which group of friends would you choose to spend more time with? It's pretty clear, isn't it? And from this, we can understand how the environment affects our aspirations for change, and what we expect and come to accept, and why it is that if we don't adjust the setting, it might appear that change isn't possible because we're just who we've always been. So the fourth myth about personality is that personality is something to be discovered. Now the issue with this is that it leads us to believe that everything will change once we discover the secret to life. As if there's something out there akin to a winning lottery that everything will be okay once we find it. I've just got to go and find myself. I've met Numerous people down the years who've gone off traveling in search of themselves or have taken time out because they're looking to discover themselves. And the truth is, in most instances, those people didn't find what they were looking for because, well, in essence, they were looking in the wrong places. But this is a fairly common belief. Um, for instance, when it comes to finding ourselves in our passion, We often think of it as something we need to unearth and maximise. Yet life hasn't hidden anything, let alone our personality or passion, from us. And thinking life has hidden something from you will render you passive. In other words, we're much less likely to take affirmative action towards what we want if we believe the life waiting for us is something we stumble across. It's akin to trying to start a fire, yet hoping that life will provide the initial spark on our behalf. I mean, the truth is, it isn't going to happen. Because we need to understand that motivation and inspiration follow the action. And motivation is an outcome of hard work, and not the other way around. So most likely, lightning isn't going to strike on our behalf. And in waiting for it to do so, we tend to feel disappointed and our confidence and imagination dwindle along the way. And personality, like passion, motivation, confidence and inspiration, they're byproducts of your decisions in life. So in other words, we must take responsibility for creating that initial spark if we want to turn it into a fire. In George Bernard Shaw's words, he said, life isn't about finding yourself, life is about creating yourself. And that brings us to myth number five, that personality is your authentic self. Now across the United States, teenagers in recent times have begun calling on their teachers to excuse them from classroom presentations. What's the reason for this? Well, as one team put it in a tweet that apparently was shared over 130,000 times, forcing students to present in front of the class made them anxious. Now, interestingly, many teachers appear to be swayed by this and have gone along with it. And as a result, classroom techniques less demanding than speaking in front of the class are becoming increasingly popular. Now, this might sound like a positive, feel-good story about how open-minded education is becoming. But still, the outcome of this response is actually, I believe, pretty harmful. Because by catering to these demands, schools validate the notion that young people lack psychological flexibility. And ultimately, this impacts their ability to grow. Now, more often than not, the idea of an authentic self actually holds us back. And this brings to mind an experience recalled by Adam Grant, who's a well-known professor in organizational psychology, and he recalled a time where he was giving a a talk to a room full of people and he was so incredibly nervous, he could he could barely stand, like he he just felt so self-conscious and jittery and he said by the end of the lecture it was almost as if, you know, the people sitting in the hall were feeling nervous on his behalf. Now, what he could have done he, he might have just said, well, I'm not going to give any more talks because clearly this isn't who I am. I'm just not cut out for it. But in fact, what he decided to do was he forced himself to take on as many lectures as he could. And actually he gave out um, questionnaires to um, members of the audience afterwards to try and get their feedback to help him improve. And as a consequence, over time, he went from someone who could barely utter a word in front of a room full of people to someone who could competently and confidently deliver lectures now let's imagine if this um if adam grant had just accepted that not being able to talk in front of a room full of people was his authentic self he would never have made that kind of progress it was only because he wasn't prepared to accept that as an outcome for himself that he managed to change it And this brings to mind this idea that there's no growth without resistance. So if we encounter resistance, we go, oh, that's not for me, that's uncomfortable. We take a step back from it. We're never going to be able to grow. Whereas if we encounter resistance and we say, well, this must mean that there's growth just over the horizon. That's when our lives can begin to expand. So because of who you become, essentially, is a choice. And it's one that only you can make. Yet, when we invest in the idea that personality represents the authentic self, we end up erecting all kinds of barriers to what might be possible. We say you realise that you need to take better care of your body, or your career prospects would improve were you to learn a new language or update your computer skills. Yet, you said to yourself that you don't relate to exercise and that it's messy, awkward, and uncomfortable, or that you don't need to learn new skills and anyway, it doesn't really fit in with who you are. Well, what's going to happen? your progress will be limited and your opportunities to move forward will be hampered. In other words, if what you expect from yourself has to pass through a filter of who you were in the past, how will you ever progress? Okay, thanks for listening. I really hope you found this uh, of interest and perhaps there was something useful in there as well. And if you have any questions, please feel free to get in contact with me, dom at anxietymaster.org. I'll be really happy to hear from you. Till the next episode, thanks for listening. Take care.